I V M. The increased privatization of education over the years has led to the dynamic evolution of the educational system as a whole. However, it's also led to a severe inequality in the way we educate, as well as given rise to a need to regulate how this privatized model should function, especially keeping in mind the disruptions driven by the pandemic and the need to drive equality in the way we educate. One company that's working to drive this regulation in India is Oxfam India. And today I have Ankit Vyas, their program coordinator for inequality in education, on advertising is dead, to dig into all of this and so much more. I'm Varundu Girala. This advertising is dead. Be right back with Ankit. Welcome back to Advertising is Dead. Uh, we talked to Ankit. Hi, Ankit. Welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me. Here. You know, uh, I want to start off by just to set context for the entire audience. Right? I want to kind of set context in terms of what you guys at Oxfam do, um, what you've been focusing on, especially in India. Uh, so people get a broad basis of what, what you, you've actually been pushing towards and, and, and think from there we'll, we'll move towards talking about some specifics. Sure. Sounds good. Broadly, I mean, Oxfam works on a lot of issues ranging from responding to emergencies to working on issues of gender. Uh, but what I and my team specifically focus on is uh, the issues of health and education. And uh, over the past year, we've been running the campaign against the rising privatization of uh, education and health called Rights Over Profits. And sort of the context behind that is, you know, traditionally a lot of uh, civil society organizations, including Oxfam, have focused on uh, strengthening the government system. So a lot of the work has always been with government schools and with the public education system. But uh, given the fact that now almost 50% children actually attend private schools, uh, we felt that this was also an area that uh, needed our attention. It's actually an area that doesn't receive enough uh, attention from civil society organizations. Uh, and that's kind of the context with... Uh, within which we said, let's try and work on issues of private schools as well. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of a gist of what. Yeah. What's a, whenever, when I was looking at the, uh, what you're focusing on as well, right? And, and there are, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there are many contrary points to this, right? And, and let me pick out a few, which I'm pretty sure you hear very often. And people say, okay, one second, uh, public and government schools will not be able to teach the way you need to be taught in today's world. So you need a lot of private education, um, right. You'll have people turning around and say that uh, there are people who say, do we need to overhaul how education itself functions? You know, where people yeah. are learning yeah. a lot more of apps right now than they learn actually in the classroom yeah. and so on and so forth. So when right. you're looking at that and you're talking about, you know, kind of re-looking at how privatization functions, um, yeah. what do you feel is, 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 is the core point we all miss when we say, when, when, when you, when people say statements like these? Right. So a couple of things. I mean, one is we are very clear that we're not doing the public, uh, versus private debate here. We are not arguing mm. for uh, one over the other. What we are essentially saying is, uh, first thing is, you know, most of the best education systems in the world, like Finland, uh, they traditionally are have been public education systems. They, are, they have large public education systems where uh, all children, regardless of background, attend. So firstly, if one looks at research of successful education systems across the world, it tends to be uh, public in nature. Mm. 
but given that, I think what one is missing here is the issue of, uh, you know, there needs to be accountability of whatever system exists. And we are not saying that uh, it's only the private sector that needs to be accountable. But the fact of the matter is that there has been a lot that's been written about, uh, researched about how government schools uh, need to be better accountable. There's a lot that's been written and a lot of criticism also about how government systems lack accountability. I think what a lot of people are missing is that uh, private schools also need to be held to the same standards of accountability. Uh, and that's kind of where we want our focus to be because uh, essentially right now, if one looks at the given context, private schools are, uh, there isn't enough regulation or isn't enough comprehensive regulation uh, looking at how private schools operate uh, and also to sort of remedy the issues that private school parents might be facing. So I think that's kind of I think, the missing point where people get into this dichotomy of uh, public versus private. Uh, mm. I guess that's not what we want to focus on. It's more about holding both uh, accountable. I, I feel like accountability is an interesting point here, right? Is um, and 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 there are multiple tracks here. One track is just genuinely how everyone has started to learn and in a no, almost a non-linear format of, of, of your learning has, has really changed how, let's say, really, so, so I have, I have a four-year-old, so I, you know, I've, I've kind of right. seen how she learns and, um, and, and how, it, how that would be different from how I would have learned when I was younger. And it, it's very right. apparent that we have now generations coming up who are, mm. are getting so much more information and what they can learn from um, and, and, and how much they can kind of do with that. Uh, and, but on the other end of the spectrum, you're also talking about age-old systems that haven't really changed, um, hmm. be it regulations or be it how education functions. Um, and in that, at some point, and, and, and I know it's a long-winded question here, but um, when you look at the private school system, and I, and I feel that you know it's also a broad thing to call it a private school. I think there's so many different categorizations there, etc. How do you think that, especially the way private schools are functioning, are in many ways, you know, taking away, and you said you spoke about the experience of parents right now, especially with private schools. Uh, okay. Which are the parts that we sometimes miss just in terms of how they function from an accountability standpoint? Because in a sense, they are being accountable for the curriculum of some sort, but are they accountable for other factors? Um, what would those factors be? And especially like looking at the modern sense of things and, and why we don't um, really understand enough over there. Sure. So, you know, one basic way in which government schools, and I mean elementary government schools and private schools differ, is that obviously private schools uh, charge fees. Mm. And there are some states which have mechanisms for uh, parents to be actually consulted before fees are set. But the fact of the matter is, one, most states don't really have a, a law or policy in place which would involve parents in the process of fee fixation. Mm. Uh, and I guess that's fundamentally, I mean, one level of accountability where parents should be involved, considering that they're the main stakeholders, parents and children. Uh, obviously, schools do have the autonomy to fix fees, but that there has to be a certain process that needs to be followed. And obviously, if they're planning to, you know, hike their fees substantially, the school should be held accountable in terms of at least making a presentation or a case to parents of, you know, okay, this is why we want to increase the fees. You know, you know, these are the three things that we are planning to do. This is how much it will cost. And therefore, we are proposing that uh, we increase the fees by X percentage. But the reality is that uh, it's much more arbitrary than that. And parents really have no 
voice in the matter. It's uh, and we've seen this during the pandemic as well mm. with private schools sort of hiking their fees, uh, charging bus fees, transport fees, uh, despite schools being closed, and parents kind of just being, uh, in a sense, consumers who have no voice instead of mm. being active participants uh, of the education process, which they should be rightfully. You make an interesting point about schools during the pandemic, right? Is that, um, and obviously I'm coming from a, from a much more privileged point of view, uh, primarily because, you know, my daughter does go to a private school um, and she has access to a lot more things than, than, than most people would. Um, but the simple fact that, you know, the conversation still has been, okay, you're paying school fees, but in a sense, you are right. actually the parents doing a lot of the, half the teacher's job as well. And on top of right. that, the fees are going to be there. And on top of that, there's other things you have to do, like, you know, having to balance work and um and school as well and everything else around that and 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 the core point of what was right to charge and what is not right to charge during this period um, you mentioned the buses i think that makes total sense why would you charge for it and and i think the rebuttal many times is no but you still need these resources we won't be able to sustain or keep them in this sense so we'll go into a loss and it's end of the, it's end of the day it's something we have to pay for so uh, how does and and maybe there's an international example for this and, I, and i'm sure you would know so what have been models that have worked, especially to really boost up and, and public education um, in a way that, again, it's, I'm not going one, one or the other. I'm yeah. just saying that from an overall regulatory standpoint, what have been regulations that have worked, let's say, globally, that in many cases we could kind of adopt and, and kind of take on? Sure. So I'll sort of answer. There are two questions, I guess, that's mm. part of what you're asking. One is uh, the argument of schools about what they can charge and what might be some solutions to that. And yeah. the other is the broader question of strengthening public education. Yeah. Uh, I'll take a private one first and then get into the broader question. Hmm. Uh, the argument that a lot of private schools have made during the pandemic and uh, even before that is that uh, we are charging fees because uh, we need to pay our teachers, we need to maintain the infrastructure of the school and we have a bunch of these uh, recurring expenses that we need to sort of pay for. In Delhi has done a lot of interesting work with regard to doing audits of private school accounts. Mm-hmm. And what they have found is they just done an audit of about uh, 10 to 15 schools and they actually found that they had a surplus of about 50 crores uh, oh. on their accounts. But so while the private schools were claiming that, you know, we don't have any money uh, to pay our teachers, which is why we need to hike fees and ask parents to pay more, uh, the accounts kind of found something different. Uh, and I'm not saying this is something that's true for all schools. Obviously, there are a lot of small schools that have suffered uh, during the pandemic and are genuinely facing uh, difficulties and even managing to pay their teachers and run their school. But I think a simple solution to this is just ensuring that the school's books of accounts are available in the public uh, domain. And this is something that's already mandated under law in uh, the Punjab fee regulation, even the Chandigarh uh, fee regulation uh, actually asks for this to be done. So it's essentially what one is saying is transparency. We are not arguing for, uh, you know, saying that uh, your schools should cap their fees at a certain uh, level or not charge anything. I think it's just be transparent, be open. uh, And after that, I think it's... uh, charge what is reasonable. So that's from a transparency standpoint. 
I just have a, point, a question on this one sure. um, before you go to the, the other one, Chamish. Is that yeah. um, a lot of schools might turn around, and I'm and again in many ways, what I'm trying to do is what would the counter question points be, right, to what you're sure. saying, uh, and, sure. and and what someone would turn around and say, one thing, we're still a business. Um, in many ways, we still have to run. We have to be profitable, so we need to invest for the future, etc. And I'm sure those are words that get thrown around and in an audit. But um, as private institutions, uh, for them to put out in a transparent form, um, some of them might say once again that, but we're still supposed to make money out of this, um, and that might obviously might not want to show it as much as they will have to if they're transparent. Um, so, is there a line where it becomes okay? You need to be fully transparent, but you can't make too much money. Um, or you you need to be transparent, but you, obviously you are a you are a private entity. You will make money, but may, be reasonable about it. So how do you draw that line between both? Um, because I think once if you can actually get to that line, then a lot more people will push towards actually getting it done. I think that because it seems like you are not, uh, you know, you're right. not being told to make money, then someone will say, "Okay, but second doesn't make sense." Um, so how do you draw that line? Sure. So I mean, there's actually a a uh, famous Supreme Court judgment involving PA5, which uh, said that fundamentally education uh, is not for profit, mm. but it allows schools to make a reasonable surplus. Uh, now, again, of course, the challenge is uh, what this reasonable surplus yeah. should Quantifying be. Quantifying reasonable is a what tricky one. Yeah. Is, I guess, kind of where we're uh, uh, stuck. I guess that's the area of contention. But uh, it's it's clear in our legal framework that schools can't profiteer. Mm. As in, they, it does not allow for profiteering for sure. So yeah. it allows for some reasonable surplus to allow schools to be functional in order to, let's say, expand their infrastructure. Uh, and let's say, set up more classrooms, for example. Uh, and basically be like a functional entity, mm. but not at the cost of actually making super normal yeah. Uh, profits like a regular business would. Yeah, and also at that point, and, and also don't go towards systems like you know, there obviously have been many instances of, especially in the pandemic, of you know, um, even this online education cutting off online access to classes because you haven't paid fees or you haven't paid the extra part and, and stuff like that, which which kind of goes against what you just said, which in a sense is that, and, and I agree with you, the education in many forms should almost be like a basic right for everybody to have, and um, I guess even that would kind of go against what the, the norm around education is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, we had done a quick survey of this with uh, private school parents in Delhi. Uh, and they were, of course, because of a lot of challenges, parents were struggling to pay fees. Mm. And of those who were unable to pay fees, almost 60% reported that their child's access to education was blocked, uh, which sort of goes against, obviously, their fundamental right to education uh, there were also guidelines by the National Commission for Protection of Child Rights, which said clearly that, you know, this is a difficult time. Uh, kids obviously themselves are going through mental health issues. And for schools to do something like this at that point in time is not very uh, sensitive. Yeah. I, I want to come to the second part of the, the earlier question I'd asked you, kind of talking about how... what we could kind of borrow as models which have really worked globally to kind of bring this... Um, to, to some form of like balance. Sure. So again, there there isn't one thing, but I guess there are two or three broad principles of what one can do to strengthen the government school system. And uh, 
you know, if one looks at the Indian context, it isn't like we don't have good government schools. If one looks at Kendra Vidyagars, they're obviously uh, not even at par. In many ways, they're better than a lot of private schools out there. And what this kind of comes down to is fundamentally a difference in funding. So while a Kendra Vidyale, uh, the per child expenditure in a Kendra Vidyale is uh, more than six or seven times that of a regular government school, uh, that's fundamentally where uh, you know we need to be focusing. Uh, in around nine, more than 50 years ago, the Kothari Commission, which is sort of set up to suggest how to strengthen the public education system, uh, said that we need to have 6% of the GDP sort of earmarked uh, for strengthening public education system. And sort of even 50 years later, it's been the same ask that, uh, you know, most uh, civil society organizations, academicians have been asking for, and we're still at somewhere around 3, 3.2%. So first thing is we're spending about half of what we should be. Uh, and what that is doing again is uh, we don't have enough teachers in our classrooms. Uh, we don't have good enough infrastructure because we don't have enough money uh, to be able to do that. So the first is, of course, fundamentally the funding to strengthen these uh, systems. The second thing, though, that uh, systems like Finland have done quite well is they've managed a good mix of uh, accountability and trust at the same time. Uh, so what I mean by that is in the Indian context, uh, we because there's a belief that people won't work unless they're monitored, we sort of stretch uh, towards the other extreme of saying, you know, we'll uh, monitor teachers' attendance, we'll uh, take, keep taking tests, we'll make sure that, you know, there's like a punching, punch-out sort of system yeah. to ensure that they're coming. Uh, instead of, uh, let's say, a country like Finland, what they would do is make sure that the best people become teachers in the system. So you're inherently you trust the people who are entering the system. You're getting the best people who are already well-trained. So there's no doubt about their caliber. Uh, and they're kind of trusting them and supporting them to do their job well, sort of giving them autonomy to do uh, what they do best. Uh, and I guess that's something that we also need to do is to be able to trust our teachers a little bit more, give them more autonomy in the classroom, at the same time support them uh, to actually get better and get better people into the system. Yeah, it's an interesting point to talk about supporting teachers, right? And I feel that at some point in this entire piece, that's the one piece of the, I mean, it's the, it's the most core part of education. And I feel that oftentimes there's so much that happens around it that we don't focus on the teachers enough. And and especially when, um, you know, I, I was, I'm just going to like just how the experience of education has kind of evolved for a lot of them. And so in that case, how, how do you also kind of look at teachers and saying, because, on the other end of the spectrum, and, and as I have meandered through this question, um, teachers are also asking to be paid more, uh, rather paid better rather than mm -hmm. more, right? You have a, a lot of, there's a certain lack of quality teachers across the board. I know there's some of them which are there in in, in, in primary schools, uh, sorry, private schools, etc. But um, across the board, there's also that. So if you have a private school today saying, okay, no, I have to get the best quality teachers in, so I have to pay this kind of premium. Um, how do you make sure that you're also balancing that part out in terms of like, how do the government look at, how can the government look at it by saying, okay, uh, we need to make sure that like, it, it is something that is, you know, you can live a good life by being a teacher, which in many cases isn't true right now. 
So, so how do you kind of build that into a, a regulation? So interestingly, uh, you know, this is an area which which kind of might be surprising for a lot of the listeners on the podcast. Is that the Indian government, uh, the government school teachers in India actually get paid uh, better relatively to if sort of one compares Indian government teachers with let's say the average pay in India, uh, they actually don't do too badly compared to let's say a country like the US, uh, where the teachers actually sort of rank in the bottom quartile of uh, yeah. of payment and they actually get paid below the median pay in the country. So in India, uh, honestly, government school teachers, it's not strictly an issue of pay and pay has uh, actually gotten better with uh, the sixth pay commission and the seventh pay commission coming in. Uh, obviously, there are variations between states, uh, but obviously with states like Delhi, uh, Karnataka, Maharashtra teachers are actually paid quite well in government schools. And in fact, the opposite is true in most private schools. The teachers are paid uh, quite badly. In fact, for a lot of private schools, teachers are uh, paid less than even 10,000 rupees a month. Uh, and I would actually say that it's the rights of private school teachers that need to be protected because the government has uh, told private schools as well that you know you need to pay teachers according to the norms of the 6th mm. and 7th pay commission. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of schools are not doing that. So it's barring a few elite private schools, which obviously charge a lot of money, uh, a lot of private school teachers are in fact not paid that well. So it, the, in that sense, the regulation of private schools also needs to have uh, sort of clauses about how do we protect the rights of teachers in terms yeah. of making sure they have good working conditions, they have uh, adequate pay, they have the same uh, rights in terms of uh, be it social protection, uh, insurance and stuff like that. That, that, that is surprising though. I mean, and, you know, and, and I guess it also has to do a lot with just perception, right? You perceive, I guess, public schools a certain way or government schools a certain way and you perceive private schools a certain way. Um, I have a bunch more questions, but I know we need to go in for a break. Uh, so you're going to do that and be right back with advertising instead. Welcome back to Advertising is Dead. We're still talking to Ankit. Um, Ankit, before we went into break, um, you know, we obviously spoke about teachers, but uh, I want to take this broader now. I want to say that um, one part is what do you implement? And then comes in the part of how do you implement? And especially with a country like ours, which is so complex and so large and has so yeah. many different pieces happening. Uh, how could the government kind of go about implementing a way, um, um, implementing this into it? Or or is the solution to kind of rethink how this even functions? Because now with, with the digital education being such a strong focus uh, in, in terms of how the last two years have gone, and I know that still required someone to have a device and et cetera, what if someone doesn't have one and so on and so forth. But does the solution lie elsewhere to help bring some sort of balance into into this? Or... Um, and um, and and what would your points be on that? Sure. So, with regard to if one looks at the current regulation system, uh, you know the national education policy which came out last year. Uh, the policy also acknowledges that the current regulation system has, uh, in that sense, not worked, and we do need a rethink of how that can work more effectively. Uh, since you talked about issues of implementation. Uh, I think my uh, sort of opinion on this is 
for the government to actually make it easier for themselves and also to make it more effective i think we need to decentralize the system in many ways mm. uh, and what i mean by that is having a lot of decisions taken at the school level itself rather than everything being done by the government regulatory system mm. uh, having a mechanism in place where the parents and uh, teachers and the school management works together to sort of most issues at the school level itself uh, and that would mean simple things like having a a committee at the school level which consists of parents teachers uh, and the school management and any major decision that has to be taken sort of goes through that uh, committee and obviously making sure that parent representation is, remains high on that uh, committee so a lot of the issues that we saw during the pandemic there was a lot of litigation that we saw as well where mm. we had parent associations uh, filing cases in high courts versus private schools private schools countering a lot of this could have been avoided if you know at the school level itself there was a mechanism uh, where parents teachers and schools kind of sort out uh, the issue and agree uh, on on what needs to be done if this doesn't work then of course one can have a mechanism at the district level uh, which parents and schools both could approach but fundamentally i think we do need a mechanism to sort of decentralize this uh, so that it's not just the government doing it but in some sense uh the parents also playing a role in that regulation so you know, looking at the effort you're kind of putting into to pushing towards regulation um if i'm someone listening to this podcast right now um what can i do to kind of help because um i do believe a large number of people today and i feel especially today's generation and i said i'm generalizing across millennial gen z and and, and i'm an almost 40 year old millennial so i think we are old enough now um as a generation um and what can we kind of do to kind of help because i think most of us do believe that you know you you need to have more uh more balance in 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 how education functions um private public as well and you know, across the board there needs to be a certain level of thing there so what can what can one do to kind of help you guys in 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 what you're doing sure so couple of things three things uh, i guess specifically that one could help with uh one is we have a petition uh, to the education minister on our website uh, and i guess we'll share the link later to that and uh, essentially that petition is calling the education minister to have a national level uh, comprehensive regulatory framework which includes aspects of not just the regulation but also broader aspects of making sure children are not discriminated against uh, and so on and uh, we are essentially calling for that to make sure that uh, uh, there is a comprehensive framework that then other states could adopt so that's one is uh, sort of signing that petition and sharing that the other thing is we also have an online survey right now that we are doing to capture the experiences of private school parents uh, and the idea is to actually get evidence on what we're talking about from parents themselves so a lot of the issues that i spoke about on the podcast we're trying to uh, get evidence of that from private school parents and then use that evidence to approach the government for greater regulation uh so the second thing would be i guess share uh, fill the survey if you are a private school parent uh and if you're not just like a circulate that in your network so that uh we have evidence that can help uh and the third thing i guess is if again uh, this would be more applicable to private school parents but uh one is get a sense of 
you know what is the regulation what are your rights as parents so for example if you're in maharashtra uh, the rights of parents is that they should be consulted by the school uh, before the fees high so i guess uh, doing some homework and we uh, as oxfam we're trying to sort of have these state wise fact uh, sheets uh, so that parents can go through that but i guess also just being aware of your rights as parents uh because that is again sort of the job half done if parents themselves know that you know this, this is what my right is and they can uh, hold the school accountable uh, rather than waiting for the government to step in awesome um so i'm actually going to go towards the what i do at the end of every episode um i i i throw a bunch of questions at my guests um which have nothing to do with what we've spoken about right now so i'm going to do that to you as well um and um considering what you do in if i if i can call it your day job um what do you do when you're not uh, focusing on work are there interests beyond that that you have um what do you spend a lot of time doing people is one second you, on on your day job you do this but this is what you enjoy doing otherwise uh, so what would that be so i i love sports i uh, love playing football i just played badminton today morning yeah uh and yeah i spend a lot of my time i guess even uh on call sometimes looking at places i can travel to uh ah, so nice. uh and particularly hike to or trek to yeah it's kind of what i enjoy to i've always wanted to ask someone who enjoys hiking and trekking um while i and and i'll sound like a really lazy person it's it's amazing <laughs> when you're right on top what do you enjoy about the actual climbing part of it is the question i all i i I always ask this question because I want to figure out if I can find that level of push. I guess it's the scenery around you. So it's not just uh, for me. It's not just about uh, as cliched as this sounds. Mm. It's not just about I guess the destination. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in many ways, yeah, I guess I just enjoy the uh, trail and sort of leaving all my devices behind and just being with nature. I guess that's the part that I enjoy. So just kind of walking without any agenda as actually that 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 sounds lovely i think that walking without an agenda is something we should all do more often um anything that you've um, read listened to or watched recently that you'd recommend hmm. i've been getting a little lazy with the reading but yeah. uh, i i actually i'm reading the a suitable boy which is like i'm super late in doing so <laughs> i watched the series first and now i'm reading the book but uh, i think it's a really beautifully written book in terms of uh, a lot of these uh, you know booker prize sort of authors tend to yeah. use very difficult uh, english and their phrases are sort of quite convoluted i think this is a if you want to learn how to write i think it's a beautiful book in terms of how to construct simple clear sentences so um so I actually want to tweak my last question for a change. So I normally ask my guests that I do a spin off the name of the show. The name of the show is Advertising is Dead, but we talk about most things around now. Um and I try to think of okay, what will not die as a question. Um but to you I'm actually going to flip it around and saying that um why do you feel that pushing towards a more balanced and regulated form of education will honestly make education more alive than it is right now? i'm i'm flipping this around for you sure so i guess it's essentially we 
we want a system where children of all backgrounds interact with each other. I mean, uh, if I just look at my childhood and maybe even your case might have been similar when we went to school, uh, you know, we had kids from fairly different backgrounds in the yeah. same classroom. We had uh, someone who was, uh, whose father was an auto rickshaw driver. We had someone who owned a massive car showroom. We had yeah. someone whose mother worked uh, uh, as a cook in the school. And so as children, we were all aware that, you know, there is this diversity of uh, classes and maybe I would, there is evidence to suggest this and I would also like to believe it, that this in some sense maybe made us a little bit more empathetic about mm. different uh, classes existing and about the inequality that exists. Mm. Uh, but I think now the challenge is we've reached a stage where uh, children might go through their whole life and their whole schooling system uh, without ever interacting with anyone who isn't exactly like uh, And I guess that's, that's where we need to make education more alive because education is not just about the curriculum. It's also about uh, the diversity of lived experiences. So if I am in a classroom just with uh, you know, children who speak like me, look like me, think like me, uh, are dressed like me, then I'm really not learning anything different. I mean, we're just all clones of mm. each other, as opposed to if I'm in a classroom where, you know, I, I'm with a completely different set of people and I know that uh, it's my world is not the only world mm. out there. I think that's uh, kind of what uh, at least I would like to push towards, where we have a world that kind of coexist and learn from each other. And I think that's that's perfectly put in. Honestly, is one of the pieces that I feel is really missing that we all built our own bubbles in in every single space for ourselves. And at some point, you need to be part of each other's um, bubbles. If uh, considering I'm yeah. just using that analogy and taking it further, um, thanks, Adang Ankit, for for coming on the show. I think it's it's there's a lot to learn from what you guys are doing, and and just from what you've given as information, some other pieces would be something that a lot of us wouldn't really know about. And uh, and for everyone listening in, you know. You know how you can kind of, uh, you know, from the petition to you know the survey, uh, we're going to drop it in the show notes. So, so make sure you kind of put that in there. And um, and Anankit, thank you for coming on Advertising Estate. Thanks a lot, Rod. I had a good time.